0: From the outside looking in, the lifestyle and traditions of Christianity can look weird and almost nonsensical. In this series, we'll attempt to unweird Christianity by giving context, purpose, and meaning behind the things that we do regularly. Refill community, welcome to church. All right, welcome back to Get Your Refill. Now, this is the last episode of the series, Welcome to Church. Uh, and we're going to end this series on a little bit of an apologetic note. Now, I'm not saying sorry or anything like that, uh, because apologetics is actually a theological term. We get it from 1 Peter three fifteen. It says this: "But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have." And the phrase he uses here, "give an answer," that comes from the Greek word apologia. It's a legal term, and it basically means a formal defense of something. So apologetics is a is presenting a defense or defending your faith. It's, it's reasoning with someone why you believe what you believe. And as Christians, we need apologetics. You and I, especially today, with all the craziness in the world and it getting even crazier, we need an apologetic response to this exact topic that we're going to be covering today. And the topic we're covering is demystifying the Bible. Because a lot of people, especially outside uh, the church, they see Christians as weird because we follow closely the wisdom and guidance found in a book that was written nearly 2,000 years ago. And that's kind of weird. And I've heard it said like this, they see it as us following like the Harry Potter series as a compass for our life. That's how they see us. And, and if you're new to Christianity, you most likely have been introduced to the power of the gospel and God's word, but maybe you're still a little skeptical about it all. And so my task today is to give some credibility to the Bible, and then maybe even give you a response as to why we hold the Bible so near and dear to our hearts. Okay, Uh, what I'd like to do is to just come up with some generic questions and and concerns that I think people would have regarding this topic, Uh, and I'm going to give you just kind of sort of answers that I would give in response to those questions. Um, There might be other questions, there might be other responses, and so this isn't going to be exhaustive, but maybe it'll give you a nice starting point to just springboard off of in your own personal studies and seek Truth. Okay. So, one concern that people have expressed to me is that they have a hard time trusting the Bible because it's been translated just so many times. You know, the argument goes one translation should be enough. But since there are so many translations, it has to be because it's being changed or altered, or maybe the translators have like an agenda, or maybe churches or religion has an agenda, and so we can't trust it. Uh, But that's just not the case. And and you're going to see why. Now, according to my sources at Google, there are more than 450 different English translations of the Bible. Uh, And and this isn't because of anything sinister, it's just because there are different methods of translations. You see, some translators aim at keeping the words as close to the original manuscript as possible. So this is a literal translation, or more commonly, a word-for-word method. These are going to be your interlinear Bible, the NASB, the ESV, the KJV, things like that. Now, you might be thinking, isn't that what we want? You know, I want to know what what they're saying and and just take the word that they say and then put it in English and then we're good. Um, But when you do that, it gets extremely difficult to read. Not only do we have to deal with language, but also syntax and sentence structure. You know, ancient Hebrews and Greeks did not use our current sentence structure. So if we did a word-for-word translation, it would be hard for us because it'd be kind of garbled a little bit. So, you know, while a word-by-word sounds great, and and it can be, it's also really hard to just sit down and read. It's confusing at times because, again, verbs, nouns, they aren't where they're supposed to be in our language. And so these word-for-word translations, they're great for things like word studies or deep dives into theology because it, it tries to maintain everything original to the manuscript. Okay? There are also dynamic translations, or more commonly, thought by thought translations. Now these are a little more easily readable because the translators try to understand the thought behind each sentence or line or whatever, and then make it readable. It's still based heavily on, on scrutiny of the manuscripts, but the intention is just a more dynamic approach. They still pay attention to the words, but they're a bit relaxed when it comes to sentence and grammar they give more priority to understandability. And so what, what they can do is they can move a word here or there in order to make it read better to the, to the readers. So these are your NIV, your NLT, the CSB, um, things like that. And, and these thought-by-thought translations are good for personal study and growth. Okay, you can still do a deep dive into theology, but, uh, but again, you're going to have to be mindful of, of, of some of the word order has changed. Okay. Now there's also what's called the paraphrase translations or free translations. Um, This is the, this is like thought by thought translations, but it's on steroids. So you're still using the manuscripts, but, but they aim to translate the Bible free from the original form or language and remove the historical cultural barriers as much as possible. Okay. So it's highly readable, but it's just not as precise. Uh, It's still a good translation, but and but you know the purpose of this would be just to sit down and read. If you're like, hey, I've I've never read the Bible before, and you know the, the King James is really hard or the NASB is really hard, so you can read these uh, paraphrase translations and just sit down and read it. It's very very readable. Um, and a- again, all of these are good translations. Any one of them, they're really good translations. But it's just depending on what your purpose is. And my advice to a lot of people is just use a bunch of different translations. You know, translators will interpret words as best they can, but, you know, they vary between which words they use. And, you know, I've, we've seen this in just the episodes that we've done here. Different words are used and, and we can kind of gather all of those together to get a better understanding. And so having multiple references helps close the gap of language and grammar. Um, the other thing that I mentioned that, that we need to look at is is the varieties of language in a translation because the Bible was written in predominantly two languages, Hebrew and Greek. There's some Aramaic peppered in there, but but it's mainly Hebrew and Greek. And anyone who's bilingual will tell you languages don't always match up. You know, in English, we have one word for love and the Greeks have eight. We talked about, you know, the Hebrew word shalom, and we interpret that as peace, but, but that's only a partly accurate description. And and that's why and I just found this out recently. It's pretty cool. I, I've I've now started to use it a little bit more because I I realized what it was. But the Amplified Bible is very useful because it expands on words in English that just need a little bit more clarity. And so I challenge you right now, or not right now because you're listening to the podcast, but uh, after this, go read the Beatitudes in the Amplified Bible and just see that it, it gives you a little bit more of understanding what each word. Um, that, that needs clarity means. You know, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek or blessed are the poor, that word blessed is so much more than just blessed. So the Amplified Bible tries to, to expand on that. Okay. So with translating ancient languages like Hebrew or a Proto-Indo-European language like Greek into modern English, you can imagine that there's going to be some difficulties so, so there you go. There's your answer. There are a lot of translations because translating is difficult work, and there are a lot of variables to juggle, okay? So to avoid that, use a bunch of different translations, okay? It's okay. They're good translations. Okay, um, here's the next concern about using the Bible. Some people might ask, how is it that we can know for sure that what we read on the pages in our Bible is accurate to what the original writers penned? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the manuscripts, And by manuscripts, I really mean old copies of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Copies that date as close to the original date of of the writers as possible. Now, first off, let me just say that of all the documents ever produced in human history, I'm talking like Plato's stuff, Aristotle's writings, Homer's the Iliad, things like that. Of all of that stuff, the amount of proof and validation for the Bible being an ancient historical document is mind-blowing. Just just do a Google search and see how many manuscripts and ancient commentaries and Coptic writings uh, about those manuscripts that are out there. There are thousands of records. And of those other documents, like Homer's Iliad and things like that, that we take as historical, at most, they have hundreds of manuscripts which, which means that we have an overwhelming abundance of evidence that we can cross-reference to ensure that our Bible is accurate to the original document. I, I, I'm, it's, it's almost like God wanted to make sure that we not only preserved his word, but we could trust it as well, right? Go figure. Um, and let me, let me put it in another way. Let me put it in a little bit more perspective. There is more evidence for the Bible than there are of Alexander the Great and all of his conquests and it's not even a close race. But, but have you ever heard of anybody who is a, an Alexander the Great Denier? That's just something to think about, okay? Now, I think in part, um, if not coming from the evidence background, that this question of authenticity comes from those who simply don't understand the process of translation. I think they believe that the Bible was translated into English, and then all the other translations just pull from that English translation to make new ones. But, but as we showed earlier, that's that's not what happens. It's a strenuous, scholarly, precise, and meticulous process that takes a highly qualified team years to produce. So whichever translation method they use, you know, the, the dynamic or the literal or whatever, every Bible is translated by looking at the available manuscripts and then working to produce an English translation from those manuscripts. And because of this process, we know it's accurate. Because think about it like this, because of the many translators and different translations, it's almost impossible to change the Bible because there are people who can check the work of other people. Like for instance, if I became a Bible translator, I could make the claim that Jesus's real name is Ralph. But since there are 449 other translations that would refute that claim, I would stand out. And then you'd be able to go, yeah, that's not the right translation. That's wrong. Do you see what I mean? And even cooler is something like this, because of our modern day technology and and the amount of stuff that archeologists have dug up, you could actually have your own Bible translation if you were able to speak Greek and Hebrew, which means technically, you can check these translations yourself. It might cost you a little bit and resources, but you could absolutely do it. And I I think that's pretty cool, you know? In, In fact, I know there are some seminaries that actually make their students interpret a chapter or here or there from, from those manuscripts so that they understand the process. Okay, here's another uh, another question. Some people struggle with the Bible because they think it's presumptuous to think that any book written by men could be perfect. And to respond to this, there are two different avenues that we can take. The first avenue is to discuss authorship of the Bible. And the second is to try to understand the meaning of what we would call the inerrancy of Scripture. So let's tackle that first one first. Who wrote the Bible? Did God write the Bible or did man? And the answer is yes. (laughs) The authors of the Bible were men that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the book. Now, to be clear, God did not take over the mind and consciousness so that God was the mind and man was simply holding the pen. That's not what they mean by that. It's more of like a partnership. Uh, Millard Erickson says it this way, quote, By inspiration of scripture, we mean that supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the scripture writers that rendered their writings an accurate record of the revelation or that resulted in what they wrote actually being the word of God, end quote. So man absolutely wrote the Bible and God absolutely wrote the Bible and guided those words of those men. Okay. Now let's tackle the second part, which is the inerrancy of scripture. And many Christians would answer this question differently because there are varying conceptions of the word inerrancy. You know, some hold that the Bible is absolutely inerrant. Uh, Of both scientific and historical matters, the Bible is 100% accurate, exact, and precise about everything. Some hold that the Bible has full inerrancy, meaning it's completely true, but it's not always exact and precise. Some hold that the Bible has limited er inerrancy. Meaning it's inerrant and infallible in the salvific doctrines, but the scientific and historical references it makes merely reflect that of the people writing it. The writers were limited in their understanding of how the world works, but for the purposes of what the Bible intends to do, which is communicate who God is, it is fully true and inerrant. There are also the view of inerrancy of purpose, which is that the, the purpose of the Bible is not to communicate truths of, of science and historical you know, facts, but rather to bring people into a relationship with Christ. And it does this perfectly, meaning there, there's nothing missing out of the Bible that would enable a person to know Christ. And so it's inerrant in its purpose. Another position is of accommodated revelation inerrancy. Um, don't worry. There won't be a quiz on all this. I'm just trying to <laughs> trying to give you guys a little bit of a of a background and and, and a, a wider scope of things. Uh, so the accommodated revelation inerrancy basically emphasizing the human nature of authorship and reserving the right to label any shortcomings in the Bible as as just being human nature. You know, it, it's it's human's fault. So that's what it is. The, God is still true, but people mess up. Okay, there's two more. The next position is that of revelation is non-propositional. That is, the Bible is not itself revelation. Uh, The point is to get us to to interact with God so that we have a revelation of truth. Uh, So the question of true or false in this concept doesn't matter, and any presence of errors in no way takes away from the Bible's function and usefulness. And then lastly, there's the position that inerrancy is irrelevant altogether. So inerrancy is not a biblical concept, and and erring is is more of a spiritual or moral matter than intellectual. And and those that have this view see it as something that is artificial, that is, inerrancy is is artificial, and imposed and divisive and limiting in the way that people can interact with the Bible and and through their studies. Now, I say all of this, like I said, to give you some context as to one, kind of let you see how you view the Bible, and then two, Kind of help you understand how you should respond. Now, for me, I tend to lead towards more of the side of full or even absolute inerrancy, and so when people say that it's impossible to make a perfect book, I say, well, it happened at least once, you know, and and it's not like this book is Harry Potter or something like that. It's drenched in history and archaeology and science and philosophy and cosmology. And because of the divine hand in the production of the Bible, we can see all of these truths leap off the page, displaying God's hand in creation. So I don't say that 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 mankind made a perfect book. I say that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's inerrant. Okay. Uh, I've been asked even by my own family members about the various mistakes in the Bible. So, so how do we deal with all the mistakes in the Bible? And now you're probably going, wait, wait a minute. Didn't you just say the Bible is inerrant? So if it's inerrant, how can there be any mistakes? Um, Yes, the Bible is inerrant, but there are some issues that you kind of need to be aware of. Truth be told, there are some things that need to be addressed that can be a stumbling block to a lot of people. Things like late additions. So for instance, the ending of Mark. Most scholars agree, and they agree because of the manuscripts, but um, Mark's gospel ends at chapter 16, verse 8. But your Bible probably goes up to verse 20. Or the Lord's Prayer. You know the whole, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever, amen part? That was most likely put in later by a scribe. And there are also things like discrepancies between accounts. Like Mark and Matthew and Luke, they disagree on certain things. Like whether or not Mary was the first to the tomb of Jesus. Or answering the question of how did Judas die? Did he hang himself or did he fall on the rocks? And there's a bunch of stuff just like this. And, and they're not hard to find. So, And right now you might be going, wait a minute, how am I supposed to trust a book with mistakes and conflicting stories? What's going on? Uh, I, I think it would be really, really fun to, to do a series on all these controversies. So I'm not going to spoil it now. Um, look out for that in later episodes. Um, but I am going to say this. I'm not at all worried about any of these things. And neither should you. Those Those passages that were added or taken away The good thing is we know about it. Like, like, think about that. We know they're there. So the translators aren't trying to pull something past you. They're just saying, you know, as a true historian should, Hey, here's what I found. Here's what some of the manuscripts have, which they have, you know, Mark up to verse 20 and some don't, but here, here's, here's what the truth is. And all of that information is in your footnotes. So it's there. And then secondly, these additions don't take away from the truth of the gospel. Mark's ending edition, it doesn't change who Jesus is, nor his gospel. It just ties a, a useful bow at the conclusion of the gospel, so it's not on this weird, you know, cliffhanger kind of thing. And thirdly, biblical writers wrote things in a certain way for a reason. Like Luke wrote his gospel so that his friend would know that Jesus was a real guy and that this Christianity thing was legit. But Matthew wrote his gospel for a completely different reason, and to a completely different audience. And so they're going to tell the story differently. One is gonna care about the order of events and timelines, and one isn't. Now, I wanna leave you with this. Uh, Dr. Vadibokum has a great presentation on YouTube called, Why You Can Believe the Bible. And, and I really wanna encourage you, go check it out, it's amazing, it's like 45 minutes, something like that. It's great. Uh, but in that video, he says that a lot of people have difficulty in responding why they believe in the Bible. And a lot of people come up with answers that, that just don't hold up against scrutiny and prodding, especially in the academic world like college. That's why a lot of kids are falling away from their faith is because their college professor goes, hey, why do you believe this? And they go, well, I believe in the Bible because of whatever answer they give. And then the, the professor is just able to kind of shred that answer apart. And so what Vadi Bokum does is he gives a response that apologetically answers the question of why you should trust the Bible. As God's word and lead your life by it. And he says, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, which report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies, claiming that they are words of divine origin rather than human in origin. I'm going I'm to say that one more time because it's so good. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, which report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies, claiming that they are words of divine origin rather than in human origin. You see, we as Christians use the Bible as our compass, as our authority in life, because it's reliable. We've already seen that there is so much evidence for the Bible being this supernaturally, divinely inspired book. We can rely on it as God's word. We can trust what it says to lead us down the path of joy in Christ. And it's historical. To to my knowledge, all of the excavations and attempts to disprove the Bible as even just a historical book, not one of them has turned up anything. In fact, the more and more they dig, the more and more solid the foundation becomes. It's written by eyewitnesses. The human writers of the Bible saw what they saw and then they wrote it down. Like take the New Testament, for example, the apostles walked and talked with Jesus and then they recorded it and they did it at a time when other people could have stepped in and refuted their claims and they didn't. There's fulfillments of prophecies that, that are dated before they took place. And we know they're dated before they took place because we have the manuscripts that date before the event took place. So let's bring it full circle. Why do we as Christians use the Bible as a source of authority? Because no other book on planet Earth, ever written or ever will be written, compares to the Word of God. It passes all tests all the time and is trustworthy. You don't need to be ashamed that you follow a book written over the course of thousands of years by over 40 different authors. Because you follow a book that was written over the course of thousands of years by 40 different authors. And they all agree. When has that ever happened in the history of mankind? 40 different people across different centuries, cultures, educations, employment, and ethnicities all saying the same thing. That Yahweh is God, Jesus is the Christ, and by his grace on the cross, and the fact of that empty tomb, you can be forgiven of your sin, washed clean by the blood of the lamb, and enjoy eternal bliss in heaven through faith in Jesus. That's why we use the Bible. Have a great, great week. I'll see you next time. Hey guys, if you really love the refill podcast, do us a favor, whatever platform you're listening to us on, go ahead and like us and follow us and comment and all of those things, or go over to Instagram, follow us at the refill podcast, share our photos, like our photos, all of those things. It really helps us out. Thanks everybody.